Well, good morning again. Thank you. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Mark. We're in the Gospel of Mark, and what we're looking at is this call to follow Jesus, this urgent call that is coming out in this Gospel. We've said before, Mark is much more urgent, it's much more demanding, it's much more immediate than the other Gospels. And so we have this uh, call to consider. Uh, The other thing that we've looked at is, over the last few weeks, we often see a problem where Jesus kind of disarms the the religion of the religious leaders of his day and says that doesn't really work. You can't justify yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't cleanse yourself. We talked about how, but he would kind of leave them hanging. So so how does that work? And this chapter, this week, we're going to be in uh, the end of chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 9. Um, this is going to start to unfold how it actually works. We're going to start to begin to see the mechanics of Jesus' death for us. This idea of Jesus' substitution. It's often called the substitutionary atonement. The idea that God would actually die for us, take our place, and it's going to begin to be unfolded here in the next few chapters in this section. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you want to kind of follow along where we're reading, we're going to be on page 844 in the Bibles that are under the chairs. Page 844. Uh, this week, the text is, or the sermon we've titled, Follow the Death. I know it's kind of a cheery title, right? Um, Follow the Death. And, and what we see is that sometimes we don't see rightly. Sometimes we don't see well. Sometimes we see a little bit, but we don't see the whole picture. We don't understand the complete vision of, of what God's plan is. And so we're like the disciples. We're going to see that unfold in this text. They don't really get it. They don't really understand what Jesus is about. They don't really understand what Jesus is going to do. So if you'll read with with me, I'm going to start in verse 27, um, 8, 27. It says, "And And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let me pray for us and ask us to to see what he's talking about this morning. God, we thank you for your revelation. We thank you that you are a God that wants to show us how things work through your word, and pray, Lord, that this morning we'd have eyes to see. God, help us to overcome our blindness. Help us to overcome our our habit of just seeing what we expect or seeing what we desire. But help us to see you, the God who would give himself for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I'm, I'm a somewhat predictable preacher. Usually at this point in the sermon, I would tell a personal story that illustrates the main point, right? We, we have a problem seeing clearly what God is doing uh, in our life. We have a problem seeing what Jesus wants to do for us. And, and this morning, I, I don't want to tell a personal story. I just want to read a few verses that come just a few verses back from what we already read. Because Mark already gives us that little story that illustrates the big idea of the passage this morning. He gives us this little story that kind of walks us through visually what Christ is trying to do with his disciples. See, his disciples like us don't see clearly. And so Jesus demonstrates that in this healing that we're going to read about in verse 22. So if you back up in your Bibles to Mark 8, 22, it says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. He he sees a little bit, but he doesn't see clearly. This is illustrating what is going on with the disciples, and I think it illustrates what is going on with us. You know, we're kind of like, okay, I kind of see Jesus, or I, I I need to be in church, but we don't see the full picture of what he's doing, of his death and his sacrifice for us. Look at the next verse, verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Mark's done this before. We kind of talked about it last week. He'll have these healings that demonstrate uh, the spiritual handicap that we have, right? Because Jesus' ultimate plan was not just to restore everyone's health. He, He didn't come to establish merely a medical center, but he came to restore us back to God. There's a chasm between humanity and God because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And so Jesus is constantly saying, he who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see. He's he's constantly calling us to really see, to not just see physically, to not just see the lights and and the room around us, but to see Jesus. And so this this, uh, healing that he performs is real. Jesus really healed people. He really did that, but it was to show us something better, that there's more than just physical healing. And he's going to say it actually comes through his death, following his death. That's really the key to the whole thing. As I said, it doesn't sound really cheery. It doesn't sound really exciting, but it's really the crux of, of Christianity. It's the core, right? His death on the cross for us is, is what makes everything work. And it is also what makes Christianity stand apart from all world religions, it is what makes Christianity unique. The, the first thing that we see is that we should follow the death of the Messiah. And, and I, I wrestled with this as I was preparing kind of the, the big ideas and the main points because I, I want you to really get what the passage is saying. And, and I don't think we as 21st century Americans get the full impact of that statement that's on the screen. It says, follow the death of the Messiah. That, that's an oxymoron if you're a first century Jew. That, that wouldn't make sense. If you're in the military, it'd be like me saying, you should follow this leader. He's failed in every mission. Follow that leader. He's great. You'd, you'd say, no, he's, he's a failure. It, it, it doesn't go together. The Messiah that dies does not compute. If you read the Targums and the, the writings of the rabbis from the first century, they would, they would talk about the valiant warrior. And as we put the whole story together, we, we see that picture in Revelation. We see Jesus as that Messiah represented in the Targums, his robe dripping in blood, he's on a white horse, he's scary, he's got tattoos, he's a warrior, right? But, but that's the end. 
that the Jesus here is the one that dies for us, that gives himself for us. And, and they can't quite see it. That doesn't quite fit what they expected out of this conquering king that was to come. Look at verse 27 again. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is an interesting place, and it's really more important in Matthew because Matthew makes more of this in his version of this story. Mark gives us the briefer version here. Mark is always a little more quick and a little more to the point. But I just want to throw in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi is where they had this, um, basically this shrine to Pan, right? The Greek god Pan, uh, the dude with the goat legs and the horns, and he's kind of creepy and played a pipe, right? You know, some of you know about that if, if you read mythology and that sort of thing. So basically, you know, they had this kind of cult and this worship of Pan there, and there was this incredible kind of rock fortress kind of thing with this huge water pit, this well that went down inside of it, um, and it was known as the gates of hell, right? So in Matthew, this point in the story, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. He's taking them to this spot that are known, is known as the gates of hell. And so it's just interesting to understand the full context of what Jesus is saying. He is going to be that conquering king, but it's going to come through his death. And he's, he's trying to explain it to him here. Who do people say I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say the prophets. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Christ is a Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. It means anointed one. It means specially chosen one. It means the one that's set apart, the one that's been deputized, the one that's been kinged, right? He, he's that special one they've been waiting for. Peter says, that, that's who you are. You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You might wonder why they would do that. Uh, if you were running for public office and you had a campaign manager that didn't know you or what you stood for, you'd probably not want him to run your campaign, right? And that's kind of what's happening here. They, they really don't see him. They don't understand him. They're, he's trying to teach them. He's patiently, lovingly leading them along, but they don't see him. He's like, don't, don't help me out, okay? Don't go telling people who I am because you don't really understand it yet, right? He's saying, don't tell anybody. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 32 is a great understatement. And he said this plainly, right? Uh, a lot of scholars try to do gymnastics with this sometimes. And well, maybe they didn't, maybe he wasn't clear enough. Mark says, no, he's, he said it plainly. He told them, I am going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. And it just did not compute. They, they could not hear it. They were like, no, that, that doesn't make sense. But he said it plainly. And not only did it not compute, but, but Peter pushes back on him, right? Peter pushes back. The second half of verse 32, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, the campaign manager, is like, no, no, that's not going to work, Jesus. The you dying thing, that's not going to rescue any of us, Right? We need you to win. We need you to be successful. We need you to conquer. And, and Jesus says this in verse 33, turning and seeing his other disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. The word Satan just literally means opposer, right? The, we got these two words, devil and Satan, kind of like Christ and Messiah. One's Greek, one's Hebrew, but they both just mean opposer. They mean the one that, that opposes, the one that contradicts, the one that accuses, okay? And Jesus is saying, that's what you're doing right now. You're opposing, you're accusing, you're condemning. Get behind me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're not seeing things God's way. God has a plan, God has a vision, and you're not seeing it. You're seeing things the way people 
see things. You're seeing things according to the flesh would be the way Paul would say it in the rest of the New Testament, right? You're thinking about your muscles. You're thinking about your abilities, your strengths. He's saying you, you can't think that way. You've got to think beyond that. You've got to think about what God wants to accomplish for you. I think this is one of the hardest things for us to wrap our brains around because we are like them. I, I think because we're Christians 2,000, 2000 years later, we think, okay, no, this is obvious, right? I get it, death of Messiah, I've heard that before. But, but living that out, like really, really trusting in that, we have a hard time seeing it. We have a hard time really seeing that there's a need for this sacrifice, that the God of the universe had to die for us. I wanted to show you a couple of pictures. There was actually some psychological testing that was done with pictures like this. I have a picture of a bullfighter and a picture of baseball. Now, I don't even know who that baseball player is, but I've seen a lot of baseball players in newspapers, right? Um, I'm an American, and I've read newspapers back in the day when people read newspapers. And, and so I've seen pictures of baseball players. It's very common in our culture, right? Bullfighters, not so much. You know, maybe here and there occasionally I'm aware of bullfighters, but you don't see them every day. They, they did this test with uh, Mexicans and United States citizens where they would flash these pictures through these lenses where they could see both simultaneously. And what happens when your brain sees two things at once is your brain registers the one that's more common. It, it registers on the one that you've seen before. And I think they did this with, the, with other cultures as well. As, uh, Walter Wink wrote about this specifically with baseball players and, and bullfighters. So something that you would see every day in the newspaper in Mexico or something you'd see every day in a newspaper in the United States, that's the thing your brain said that you saw. But legitimately, they saw both things. At their eyes, they're flashing both things. Your right eye sees one, your left eye sees the other. You report to the psychological tester and you say, I saw this because this is what I expect to see. Or I saw this because that's what I would expect to see. Our, our brains, the psychological testing proves that our, our brains see what we want to see. And that's a human problem. That's, that's what we do. And that's the same thing that's going on with the disciples. They're seeing what they want to see. They, they can't make sense of the death of a Messiah. They can't make sense of this reigning, ruling king that would die for them, that would give himself for them. And I think we struggle with the same thing. But think about what you think is going to secure you in life. What do you think is the thing that's going to save you? Oftentimes, it just depends on whatever culture you were brought up in, right? I mean, it's whatever your parents taught, whatever school you went to, whatever people you ran with, Right? You may think money is the thing that's going to take care of you. You may think guarding your heart and being cynical and being smart, that's going, to, that's going to take care of you in life. You may think being tough. You may think being successful. You may think respect. You may think being the best at your job. You may think being religious is the thing that's going to secure your future. If you're in church, you, you may struggle a lot with the religious thing, right? We're here in the Bible Belt. It's even worse. It's insidious down here. We think we can be good enough. We think if we do enough religious things, that's going to secure us and God's going to be pleased with us because we're better than those bad people over there. And Jesus again and again says, no, it's my death. I, I must suffer. I must die is what he says. And we just keep seeing what we're used to seeing. No, no, no. This is, this is how people secure their future. This is how people have hope in their life. This is how people get by in our culture. And he says, no, that, that's not going to work. You need me. You are not, not enough, but you need me to die for you. And Jesus is offering himself. And I want to challenge you this morning to consider what 
what you've been trusting in, what you've been seeing. We have these images flashed in front of you. You have a God who would die for you, and you have your own self-salvation. What is the thing that you see? What is the thing that you're registering on? What is the thing that you're hoping in? Jesus is saying, it's him. He's the thing that you need. He's the salvation that's being offered. And this, this leads us then to be able to give ourselves to other people. If we really begin to see it, if we really begin to take hold of it, then that leads us to be able to offer ourselves. So we then need to follow in the death of self. And he explains this starting in 834. 834, he says, and calling the crowd to him then, so he's just kind of put the smack down on Peter. No, you're wrong. It's, it's not going to work that way. It's my death is the only way this is going to work. And then he brings the crowd around and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, his instrument of death and torture, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying that the only way that we can really find ourselves is letting go of ourself and finding him. That's our only hope. And this is not a way we save ourselves by being sacrificial. No, it's a letting go of self-salvation. You cannot depend on yourself. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot save yourself, but you need what Jesus has accomplished for you. You need his substitutionary work. I have a picture here from the 50s of a, a famous missionary, Christian missionary to South America named Jim Elliott. He uh, went to a, um, a very violent tribe in, in South America called the Alca and he actually was speared and, and killed. There's been some movies and some things that came out in the last few years about him and Steve Saint, one of his partners. And Jim Elliott had a great rephrasing of this section of Mark. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The way the Apostle Paul said it in Philippians 1.21 is, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like, like once you've let go of yourself, you're, you're invincible. Once you've let go of, of holding on to yourself so desperately and saying, I've, I've got to fix myself. I need to secure my future. I need to take care of myself. Once you've been able to let go of that and trust in Christ to take care of you, then, then you're free to actually enter into other cultures to do risky things. Not just fly across the world, but just walk into a room. Just care for people next to you. It, it turns you loose. It's not... It's not salvation by self-sacrifice. It's a willingness to let go. The Beatitudes kind of explain this. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes kind of walk through the spiritual resume where they, they talk about how we're actually blessed, we're actually happy when we recognize we're spiritually bankrupt. When we come to that place of being able to let go and say, yeah, my account's not cutting it anymore. I need what God has accomplished for me. That moves us to that place of letting go of self and, and receiving his grace. So we're really happy when we're spiritually bankrupt. We're really happy when we mourn over our sin. We're really happy when we're meek and recognize, I don't have anything, but Jesus is gracious to me. It says in the middle of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And it continues to move through this kind of 
build that, that increases and snowballs and it, it climaxes at the end with blessed are those who are persecuted for not my name's sake. And, and most of us would say, no, that's crazy, right? I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. I don't believe it. I don't like it. And Jesus says, no, when, when you're really willing to let go of yourself, that's when you really find yourself. That's when you actually have life. That's when you're really who you were made to be. That's when you can really walk in the glory of the image of God that God designed you for. I had a quote I wanted to read you from. It's actually a quote of another book. I'm reading from another book. Does that make sense? I don't know. It's, uh, I'm reading, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis I'm reading out of Tim Keller's book. So Tim's quoting C.S. Mere Christianity, one of my favorite books of all time, C.S. Lewis says this, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and my upbringing and surroundings and my natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality all of my own. When, when we're willing to, willing to take that risk, when we're willing to come to the the bankruptcy of self. We find the grace, the riches that he has for us. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. I have have a small example of of this working in my life in in little baby steps. I I try to be real with you guys. I'm I'm still struggling. I'm still trying to figure this life out. But many years ago, I'd, I'd only been married seven years. We're coming up on 19 this summer. So that was, what is that? Somebody do the math. 12 years ago? Uh, seven. So when I've been married seven years, my wife and I read this book called uh, The Five Love Languages. Have you ever, you ever heard of that before? Um, horrible, horrible book, right? Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's actually very helpful, but I was very angry at the book at this time, okay? I, I was frustrated with the book. What this book describes is kind of like we speak different languages, right? You, you tend to do for people what you actually want them to do for you, Right? Um, so I tend to be relational and conversational, and really I'm, I'm wanting that from my wife, and I'm communicating that to her. And my wife is very action-oriented, and she's a doer, and she's a get-things-done kind of person. So she's doing that for me, and so we're, we're kind of speaking different languages, right? We're not really clicking. We're not really getting each other, and we read this book, and we take this little test in it, and it tells you, oh, well, you like these things, and she likes those things. And I remember just being angry at God, like, okay, God, let me figure this out. I'm supposed to do stuff I hate, and that's going to make my wife feel loved, right? And for her to make me feel loved, she's going to do stuff she hates. Okay, that, that makes sense. I was, I was pretty angry with the Lord. I, I was praying about it and saying, I don't, I don't understand this. Why would, you, why would you do that to us, right? It seems like a cruel joke. But, but I, I trusted that that's what he wanted, right? I, I was convinced he wanted me to speak her language. He wanted me to love her. And I was also convinced that he loves me. I mean, I, I may have been a little frustrated with how things were working out at the time, but I was convinced that he loved me. And, and that, that being convinced, that being assured that God loved me, enabled me to take that risk of trying something that was uncomfortable. 
of trying something that didn't make sense to me, trying to communicate in a language that made me feel stupid and not very effective and not like a very good husband, not very smooth, but I tried and I tried. And what I want to encourage you with is, is after trying these things, after trying to speak a language that didn't make sense to me, it, it's, it's not really that big a deal. It, it's kind of fun now, right? Like I, I've learned to begin to speak her language and she's learned to speak my language. Now it's only taken you know, 12 years, but, but we've, we've begun to make this progress, right? I'm just kidding. We, we made progress before 12 years. But, but I want to encourage you that, that what you see in the Gospels, you see this, this God that completely gives himself away for us. And when we see that, when we have that vision of that God, that begins to melt our hearts so that we're then encouraged to give ourselves away for other people. And I talk about marriage because it was such a place of friction, right, in close quarters. And, and some of you have, you've, you're married and you may understand, sometimes you might have conflict in your marriage as well. You might actually have conflict with other people too, right? You ever have conflict with other people? You don't want to raise your hand about your spouse, but maybe other people in your life. And this principle, it applies to all relationships, right? It applies to every, every phase, every part of our life. If, if we're more assured that God loves us, that sets us free to take risks and be missionaries and cross over into other people's lives, to begin to understand them, to be able to speak to them, to be able to try to walk beside them. And that's what the gospel does. That's what it means to lose our life, to follow him. Well, the last thing that we see is that we are to follow death into glory. We are to follow death into glory. These verses, uh, starting in verse 2 of chapter 9, actually back up to, to verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus is promising, some of you will see the kingdom of God coming in power. And theologians argue about this because there's phrases like this throughout the New Testament. It's kind of confusing, right? And, and I want to try to explain this to you in a way that, that makes sense of the different theological traditions, the different denominational traditions. What we see is that the kingdom of God coming in power, that started at Christmas, right? Jesus was born, the incarnation. And then the kingdom of God coming in power is seen really clearly in the next few verses, what we call the transfiguration. Jesus being revealed in this kind of incredible heavenly vision on the mountain with Peter and, and John. And then later on, we see it in the cross and we see it really clearly. The kingdom breaks in and power through the resurrection. And we see the kingdom breaking in further as the Holy Spirit comes down and just blows the church up and sends the church out in service and in love. And we look forward to the future where the kingdom will come in even greater power when Jesus returns. And we look forward to these future events. And so I want you to understand that, that the scriptures talk about the kingdom breaking in in these steps. It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the king. And so the kingdom is breaking in in these layers and in these phases. And so he says, some of you are going to see it. Six days later, verse 2, Jesus took them with them, Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. He was transformed before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. It says in, in Luke, it uses the Greek word about his exodus. It's really cool. In the, in the parallel, it says he was, they were talking with him about the exodus he was accomplishing. So he's accomplishing this new exodus for the people of God. He's talking with Elijah and Moses. He's glowing 
Verse 5, Peter, still not seeing clearly, still needing further healing of his eyes, Peter says this, Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Verse 6 says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This is one more of those little pieces of evidence. This is uh, Peter's gospel, because this is the gospel that shows most clearly kind of the bumbling Peter, the, the dumb Peter. And so it makes the most sense that, that he's working with his cousin Mark to help write this gospel. He didn't know what he was saying. I, I don't have to explain this. Why, why, did, why do they want to build the tents for Elijah and Moses? Well, we don't know. He's, he's saying right here that he wasn't making any sense. He was terrified. Verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Again, we have this echo that they still don't get it, right? What could he mean? Surely he doesn't mean he's going to die and rise from the dead, so he's got to mean something else, right? And they still don't see it. They still need to see more clearly. They're still seeing men walking around like trees. Their vision is still blurry. They don't understand the death and resurrection of Christ. They asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Now how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. In the Old Testament where it's prophesied that this Elijah figure is going to come, it says his job is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the fathers. And so his job is to encourage them to repent so that judgment would not come. But if they don't repent, judgment is going to come. And Jesus is saying judgment is coming. But Jesus, as the perfect Jew, as the true Israelite, is receiving the judgment for his people. The judgment is falling on him. In the Abrahamic covenant, we see God making a covenant with Abraham, making these promises to Abraham, but setting Abraham over to the side. In the Old Testament covenants, they would pass through the blood of dead animals saying that, may this blood come upon me. May I be killed like these animals if, if I don't fulfill the covenant. But God set Abraham over the side and he said, I'm going to pass through. God said, if you don't fulfill your part, I'm going to be judged. And here Jesus is saying, yeah, the, the judgment is coming and I'm going to receive the judgment from my people. It's Jesus' death that takes our place. We get this vision of the glory. We get this vision of, of the finish line, so to speak. I have a picture of, of a finish line here. Everybody that runs a race gets excited about the finish line, right? I remember one time I, I did a 5K, I think I was about 25 years old. So it was back when I thought it was stupid to run long distance. I, I'd been a sprinter when I was younger. And so now I try to sometimes to, you know, stay alive and be healthy and stuff. But, but back then I just thought it was crazy to run long distances. So I'd gone with some family members. We'd done kind of one of those charity 5Ks and we just walked it. We had some older family members with us. I like to think I could have run it maybe, but we just walked it, right? So we didn't really endure the grueling race. But then when I got to the finish line, I couldn't resist, right? I just ran through full speed. I was like, yes! And, and I wanted to enjoy the glory of the finish line even though I just kind of puttered around and walked it all day, right? I hadn't really endured the difficulty, but I wanted the glory. And that's what we see with the disciples. And Jesus is giving them a picture of the finish line here, saying, 
here's the glory. God's revealing, this is my son. He is glorious. He is this great Messiah. But he reiterates when they're coming down the mountain, I've still got to go through the race. I still have to suffer and die. If you've been in these races, this is what the beginning of the race looks like, right? There's a million people, you're claustrophobic, it's all kind of scary and weird, and you have to run forever. There's all this suffering that has to go on. Jesus says, I'm not just going to arrive at the glory, but I'm going to suffer. I have this trek, I have this path that I've got to move through before we arrive at the glory. And our job is to follow him through that. This this really captured Peter and John, this vision that they saw. John talks about it. Peter talks about it. I wanted to read from Second Peter where Peter describes it. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain later on peter's writing these scriptures he's preaching he's telling people this is our hope and later on it all made sense his vision was restored he could see clearly he could make sense of the vision the glory this is my son this is how it's going to work later on but at this point peter still he's still not getting it There's this great section in Galatians. Galatians is a book written to uh, religious people that know Jesus who are now falling back to trying to save themselves. And so I want to warn you that this is something that we're all tempted by, something that we all struggle with. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is warning the Galatians. He says, "You, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Jesus was clearly portrayed to you as crucified. This word in the Greek that he was, he was vividly displayed when we proclaimed Jesus to you. And, and Paul's not talking about physically a, a flannel graph, right? He, he's not talking about a video screen. They didn't have those in the first century. He's saying Jesus was proclaimed to you as your only hope and you saw it. And you saw it. It was vividly seen by you. And when you fall back to thinking that you can save yourself by keeping the law or you can save yourself by following your heart, saying you're not trusting Jesus anymore. You, you saw him. And my prayer for us as a body, as a people, is that we would continue to see him as our only hope. His death for us, his sacrifice for us, and then that would unleash us to be a people that take risks, that love other people, that live in a self-sacrificial way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the vision of your son Thank you for helping us to see his death for us. And I pray that that would unleash us to be the kind of people that would give up our life. That we wouldn't be clinging desperately to our own lives and and losing them in the process. But that we would let go. That we would recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. That we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you would fill us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.